This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Dana-Farber scientists laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, new drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. Letting the unknown within ourselves take over. Earlier this year, I was stretched out on a yoga mat at a small studio in New Jersey called Ignite Sadhana. I was taking very rapid, short breaths and getting a little bit freaked out. I felt like I was about to faint. But this was all part of the plan. I was supposed to hyperventilate. I was at a workshop that teaches the Wim Hof method. Wim Hof is an extreme athlete. He runs barefoot on snow, and he's held records for the longest swims under ice. He says we can change our body's stress responses through breathing, meditation, and ice baths. Here's one of the course instructors, Jason Muscavage. So we're tapping into the parts of our nervous system that we don't usually interact with. The parts that control the body's responses to fight-or-flight situations and periods of rest. And when you go to those places in your mind, which we access that through the breath, then your body follows. Meaning you can rile up your system by taking quick breaths in and out, and then calm it down by taking long, deep breaths, with the goal of relaxation, better sleep, sharper focus, and even things like less inflammation or an improved immune response. Jason told me he first became interested in the Wim Hof method as a way to control his anxiety, which had become debilitating. That sounded a bit counterintuitive, given how freaked out I felt doing the breathing exercises. The hyperventilating definitely feels, oh, it feels a little unsettling when you're not used to it. And there's this part of you that seems to scream like, stop doing that, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, I think, <laughs> I, I think that's, that's, the, that's the dynamic. And you're kind of training yourself in that anxious state. You're in a calm state when you're laying here on the mat. But the hyperventilating gets you into that anxious state. So people that have anxiety attacks, they feel like another anxiety attack is coming on. Well, you stay with it and you realize, oh, that's not going to happen. And you learn in the safe environment how to deal with that anxiety. And you keep coming back to it, keep coming back to it in that safe breathing place. You basically breathe through the feeling of anxiety and make it less scary. Up next was a much tougher challenge, the ice bath. In the parking lot outside of the yoga studio were a bunch of rubber tubs sloshing to the brim with ice water. This was in February, and it was really cold. My bare feet hurt touching the asphalt. Several people were already sitting in the tubs. They seemed okay. How is it in there? Good? It's cold. (laughs) I braced myself for the experience. The other instructor, Peter Reyes, was guiding me. All right, I'm going in. So it's three, two, one. Look at me. Look at me. I stepped into the tub and submerged myself up to my chin. The sensation of the ice water immediately sent my mind into an intense panic, like a life-or-death kind of panic. My heart skipped a few beats. Find my eyes. Peter encouraged me to breathe through it. Just keep on going. You got it. My heart is really, like, pounding. 
but now it's getting better. Whew. Okay, wait it out, wait it out. We'll talk after your body adjusts. It might take about a minute. And slowly, slowly, I eased into the experience. I could feel my entire system calming down, like my mind was reassuring my body that I wasn't going to die in this tub. Wow. All right. Ooh. There you go. Thank you. Oh. All right. Oh, my God. When I got out, I was shaking, but my body felt great. All of my usual aches and pains were gone. I felt strong and happy. I went home and took a nap, and I haven't slept that well in years. With experiences like this, you can feel how much our body and mind are connected, how one influences the other. But in much of medicine, there is still a firm line between physical experiences and emotions and thoughts, between physical and mental health. A separation more and more researchers are challenging. On this episode, the mind-body connection and how it's reshaping medical treatments and therapies. First up, millions of people all over the world suffer from long COVID, lasting symptoms after a COVID infection. And they can be debilitating, fatigue, pain, nerve damage, heart problems, stomach issues, nausea, brain fog. Patients often seek help from a laundry list of different specialists, cardiologists, neurologists, GI doctors, but now a totally different and more holistic approach seems to be gaining some traction. Grant Hill has more. In March of 2022, Boone Lim was on a ski trip in the French Alps, nearly 6,000 feet above sea level. It was spectacular until he developed a cough. A very nasty cough that really hurt, and I thought I had fractured a rib. That's how painful it was. Boone is from London and didn't want to miss his chance to enjoy the mountains. So he toughed it out on the slopes during his first day there, but just barely. Later that evening, he couldn't keep up with his wife at the supermarket. And that's when he knew. Something's wrong. He tested positive for COVID. And I said, what, COVID, schmovid, I'm a fit and healthy guy. Should be out on the slopes with the kids in three days' time. By three days, I couldn't breathe. Boone is a cardiologist, and he figured he should monitor his symptoms. He bought a pulse oximeter and discovered his blood oxygen level had fallen dangerously low, to 82%. So I was rushed down by ambulance to the base camp where I spent overnight at sea level. A CT scan revealed his lungs were severely inflamed. The images looked remarkably similar to scans of some of his patients back in London who had long covid and I said, okay, I'm a sitting duck for long COVID. And I was sleeping 14 hours a day and feeling breathless for the, for the rest of the time of the day and feeling extremely exhausted. And I thought, gosh, if this is what long COVID is like, and if this is how I'm going to feel in 12 weeks, in 24 weeks, I'm in trouble and I can't work. So once Boone returned to London, he decided to take a radical step. I recognized that what I needed to do was to turn off my mobile phone just to have an auto-reply. And I said to my secretaries, just no response from me. He would not fight through it and see patients. He would not answer his phone. Instead, 
I got into a very deep practice of meditation, really deep, and was able to practice this for about three hours a day, just to focus on diaphragm breathing and a focus on a positive healing from my mindset. Sounds nice and all, but could something as simple as sitting and thinking positive thoughts really fight off long COVID, stop these symptoms from becoming chronic? His thinking on this stems back to some research he had done earlier in his life on the autonomic nervous system. In a nutshell, it's that bit of the brain, which is quite primitive. It's responsible for the body's involuntary but absolutely crucial actions. How fast our hearts beat, our breathing, digestion, reproductive function, sweating, and the immune response. So all of that is on autopilot, almost entirely outside of our control. Almost. Ron, what's 1,000 minus 27? Quickly. Oh, Quickly. man. Is it uh, Come on. 173? <laughs> no, 1,000 minus 27. Oh, 1,000. Oh, my God. Yeah. Come on. 973. Come on. How much? Boone said, my heart rate probably jumped 20 beats per minute there, all thanks to being confronted by a surprise middle school math question. So we know we can rile up parts of our autonomic nervous system, and pretty easily, too, under the right circumstances. Could we also do the opposite, calm things down? And could that impact the devastating effects of long COVID, which seems to be related to inflammation and immune system problems? Boone thought about his patients with long COVID and their many seemingly unrelated symptoms and the specialists who were treating them, a neurologist to tackle the brain fog, a gastroenterologist for the stomach issues, Boone, the heart problems. The treatment plans often reminded him of that old Indian parable about a group of blind men who try to describe an elephant. And the blind man that approaches its tail and pulls the tail says the elephant is just a rope. And the one that approaches its tusk says the elephant is like a spear. And the one that says approaches its side says it's like a wall. And the, the... Because each specialist faced a unique manifestation of this novel disorder, patients were often treated as if each symptom were isolated from the larger diagnosis. Boone was wondering hoping that perhaps getting to the autonomic nervous system, the control center for the body's immune response, was a way to address the underlying causes of long COVID. As if the COVID infection planted malware inside this system, causing your body to react as if it was stuck in one hellish middle school math test for months. I think if if you really want to get a holistic picture of long COVID, you need to see the elephant in its full glory with all the multifacets and components of the elephant and try and develop, if you can, a unifying diagnosis to explain why all these things occur. And he had heard encouraging anecdotes from some of his patients. Six or seven patients had told me about this amazing program that they had joined called the Rest Recovery Repair Program, which was conducted by a yoga teacher. A woman named Susie Bolt. She got COVID at the beginning of the pandemic. I just felt like I had been poisoned, like seriously poisoned. Then she developed long COVID. Weeks passed and she still felt awful, like her body was stuck in fight or flight mode all the time. I feel like everything has got 6,000 volts of adrenaline pumping through me. Susie thought if she could just reset her body's programming, shut everything down, and then reboot herself like a computer... Maybe it would jolt her system out of this terrible funk. But to do this, 
she would have to reboot all of her body's programming, not just the stuff she could consciously control. And it was in that moment that I went, okay, so I know about the autonomic nervous system. She had seen research on how meditation and mindfulness could sort of open a back door into this innermost program, allowing one's conscious thoughts to hack in and recode. My hunch is that calming ourselves down, not from like a, a you're, you're neurotic, you're out of control kind of thing, but just literally calming the nervous system, slowing down the breath, working with the mind, the body, just to kind of come home. You know, I felt so abstracted from myself. I was so ill. I felt like the, my body was a kind of battle zone. It was like wasteland. <laughs> and I needed to do that. Again, this was just a hunch. But Susie wanted to try this and share her findings with others along the way as a supplement to the treatments provided by specialists. She believed community and support were key to this reboot. So she started a Facebook group. And it grew. And then it grew. And then it grew. It was a hit. Susie's program evolved into a business. She started offering classes, day and night, live and on demand, taught by herself and instructors all over the globe. We have had thousands and thousands of people come through the program now. Classes range from a half an hour to 90 minutes and vary from mindfulness meditation and breathing exercises all the way to Pilates. Susie keeps things experimental. It might sound a bit more feel-good than hard evidence, but science is actually backing up this approach. A recent review of research studies suggests that meditation could have measurable effects on outcomes for long COVID patients, thanks in part to its ability to limit the presence of pro-inflammatory proteins and encourage the production of anti-inflammatory proteins. So... Boon Lim had heard about Susie's yoga and meditation protocol from his patients, and it made a lot of sense to him. He decided to go all in on this idea in the weeks after his COVID infection, as his symptoms lingered. I let go of work. I let go of my research commitments. I let go of all these responsibilities. Along with traditional treatments, Boon decided to completely eliminate the stress of everyday life. He knew this wasn't feasible for many people with long COVID. Most can't afford to completely shut life down. But he was grateful that he had the chance to do so. I was able to drop and go to a moment of self-connection, self-recovery. And in being able to give myself three to four hours a day to meditate and to breathe, I was able to, after six weeks, come back to full working health. And within three months, back to normal completely. Now, Boone is back to work and back to his life. He says he's feeling even better now than he did before he got COVID. That story was reported by Grant Hill. We're talking about the mind-body connection. Coming up, understanding the mental health needs of heart patients. There's a lot of stress and emotion that comes with not being able to control the organ that pumps life into your body. That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where hundreds of researchers and clinicians make new discoveries inspired by the work of previous Dana-Farber scientists. See why nothing is as effective against cancer as a relentless succession of breakthroughs. Learn more about their momentum. Go to DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. 
This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Support for NPR and the following message come from Scholastic with Free Period by Ali Therese. Free Period is Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret for a New Generation and is a hilarious and necessary novel for young readers featuring themes of empowerment, activism, and gender equity. Spend time in any American city, and you'll likely encounter someone with untreated psychosis. Lost Patients is a new podcast examining our maze-like system for treating severe mental illness, which loses patients to an endless loop between the streets, jail, and hospitals. Does it have to be this way? For the history, the reality, and hopefully some solutions, listen to Lost Patients from KUOW and the Seattle Times, part of the NPR Network. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the mind-body connection, how our emotions and thoughts impact our physical health and vice versa. Our heart pumps blood through our body with a rhythm. But for people who have serious forms of arrhythmia, irregular heartbeats, the heart can go into patterns where it's beating too fast or too slow, which can be deadly. Some patients need an implantable defibrillator, a small device that can shock the heart back to normal. Hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. have these life-saving devices. But learning how to live with this diagnosis and the looming threat of a sudden and painful shock to the heart can affect people's mental health. Some health systems are now offering specialized support. Alan Yu has more. Science writer Ashley Yeager always loved to swim. She swam as a kid and then swam competitively in college. After she graduated, she wanted to keep doing some kind of competitive sport and followed her older sister into doing triathlons. In 2011, she volunteered to participate in a study of triathletes, which involved taking some ultrasound pictures of her heart. I thought it was just so awesome that you could see this organ that keeps you alive. And so I was so focused on thinking about how the heart works and what those pictures were actually showing that it didn't really dawn on me to be concerned that the tech went to go get a doctor. The doctor did an additional test, then recommended she see a cardiologist, and quickly. That's how Ashley found out she had a very serious heart condition. She was 26 at the time. So basically, there's some underlying genetics that turns my healthy muscle heart tissue into scar tissue, and that disrupts the electrical signal the signal that tells the heart to pump blood. 
At the time, I, I was feeling great. I was still exercising. I was supposed to r- actually race in a triathlon in the next couple weeks. And the doctor said, you know, you probably shouldn't do that. Ashley had to have surgery and get a defibrillator implanted. It's a small device about as big as a deck of cards. It sits above your pectoral muscle on, on the left or right side, and there are leads that run into your heart. And if you have an abnormal rhythm, which can happen in this condition, the device will shock your heart back into a normal rhythm. She started taking some medicine to keep the unusual heart rhythms at bay. And that was it. For about five years, her life didn't really change all that much. She moved from North Carolina to New York City. And there, for the first time, the defibrillator shocked her heart. It is like an animal kicking you in the chest from the inside out. And it's very painful and surprising. And so the first time I ha- it happened to me, I didn't really know what it was. I was actually with someone I was dating at the time, and he kind of felt the reverberations and was really scared and asked me, like, what was that? And I had to kind of look at him tearfully and say, no, that was me. Uh, That was the device that saves my life. So that was an awkward conversation. After that first traumatic shock, Ashley paid more attention to her symptoms and to how she had changed. And I started to really take notice of how I felt while I was doing everyday things. So when I would take the subway and climb the stairs from the bottom to, to reach street level, I noticed that I would get out of breath really easily. And so, you know, I would try to write it off as like, oh, you know, I walked a lot or I'm tired. But looking back on it, I think those were the very early signs. The shocks started happening more frequently, about once a month. One time she got shocked three times in a row and she had to go to an emergency room to get her heart checked. The condition took a larger and larger toll on her life. One time in 2021, she was on a beach in Miami. My heart was beating at 180 beats per minute, and I actually know that because I wear an Apple Watch. And the the watch was telling me how fast my heart was beating. She expected to get a shock from her defibrillator, but it never came. It turns out later she had taken so much medicine to keep her heart rhythms in check that even though her heart was racing, she had not quite gotten to the point where her defibrillator shocked her. But she could not think as clearly. Her breathing got quicker, and she asked her husband to call 911. And the ambulance came, and while I was in the ambulance, they were not able to control my arrhythmia with medicine. So they had to actually put the paddles of life. So these are the paddles that, you know, you see on emergency room shows where they put the sticker on you and then they kind of tell everybody clear and you see the body jump. They needed to do that to me while I was awake. And it was the most excruciating pain that I have ever been through. I don't think I've ever screamed so loud. And just afterwards, I remember the smell of burnt flesh and just feeling totally helpless and out of control. In early 2022, Ashley was in the hospital again for another surgery, an attempt to ease some of her heart rhythm issues. She was still shaken by all that had happened and asked the doctors about mental health services. 
The hospital had recently hired a cardiac psychologist, somebody trained to work with people on the mental health issues that can come with heart conditions. Ashley started seeing that psychologist and worked on things that gave her anxiety, like the memory of being shocked in the ambulance every time she heard sirens. Hearing ambulances and then kind of having to tell myself that ambulance isn't for me. That that's not something's not happening right now. Talking to the psychologist also helped her deal with the completely unpredictable nature of her condition, not knowing when her heart rhythm would change and why. That was really, really hard to accept because I am very much a cause and effect person, and so to me, it's like, oh well, if my rhythm changes, it must be something that I did. It's hard for patients like Ashley to accept that these shocks are random. It's hard not to connect the shocks to whatever they were doing at the time. This is something clinical health psychologist Sam Sears has observed. He's at East Carolina University. A patient with an implantable defibrillator receives a shock in the shower and is terrified. Paramedics come, and thereafter, everything's stabilized. The patient's fine. And they come back home and they say, I'm not taking any more of those showers. Sam uses this example to make the case why heart patients need help, not just dealing with their physical health, but also their mental health. Hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. have these implantable defibrillators, and they have reported depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress tied to the shocks, even though the shocks keep them alive. When medicine makes progress. It leaves psychologic change in its wake. So we help our patients survive disease, but then we got to help our patients make sense of all that and continue to move forward. Sam got his start in this field when he was working with heart transplant patients in the 1990s. He noticed a lot of these patients had obvious signs of anxiety that doctors were not addressing. He was one of the people who helped establish the field of cardiac psychology. I talked to several health psychologists and a cardiologist. They agreed that ideally, when a patient comes in for a visit, they would see a cardiologist to take care of their heart, a technician if they have a defibrillator, and a cardiac psychologist to check on their mental health needs. The American Heart Association put out a statement saying that heart patients in general, not just the ones with implantable defibrillators, need access to this kind of care. Change has been frustratingly slow. Adrian Kovacs is a clinical and health psychologist who trained under Sam Sears. She has worked in hospitals in the U.S. and Canada, but is now in private practice in Toronto. Cardiovascular programs and hospitals—they invest in what they prioritize, and so we need for them to decide that addressing patients' psychological needs is an essential component of cardiovascular care. Adrian worked to make this happen at Oregon Health and Science University. One of the physicians she worked with was Babak Nazer, a cardiac electrophysiologist, a specialist in treating heart rhythm issues. At the end of each patient visit, Babak would refer patients to check in with Adrian to address any psychological symptoms they might have. We had a a script for our schedulers to read to patients that made it very obvious that we didn't think they have a psychological disease, but that all patients, frankly, all humans, 
have some degree of psychological symptoms. And this visit was offered to all the patients. Babak said that some patients would see Adrian once, decide that they were doing well, and did not need to see a psychologist again. Some patients chose to see Babak and Adrian together in the next visits. And then for some patients, it had been years since they had had a shock or experienced an unusual heart rhythm. But for, for whatever reason, the memory of what happened that many years ago is still stuck with them, and it's associated anxiety and depression is still stuck with them. Psychologists, cardiologists, and patients are advocating for more heart patients to have access to specialized mental health care. Patients like Ashley Yeager. There's a lot of stress and emotion that comes with not being able to control the organ that pumps life into your body. After a few years of frequent shocks from the defibrillator, Ashley's condition got worse. It kept coming back to you. I was having trouble doing normal things. I wasn't walking as well. I, w- I wasn't moving. Life kind of shriveled to a very small experience of working and surviving. And so finally, it was my husband who was speaking with our uh, heart failure doctor. And he finally just said, we need to do something else. Like, this isn't working. She's not living her life. She's just existing. Ashley got a heart transplant last year. After that surgery, she had to get moving so her organs start working together. But she had to do that while attached to tubes and medical equipment to keep her alive. I ended up turning it into a game. So, of course, being competitive, I was like, okay, well, how are how much are other people on the floor walking? And if they're walking that far, then I'm going to walk, you know, 10 steps extra. <laughs> Which, again, I'm not sure if that's the healthiest approach, but that's what kept me going. She got better at walking. And recently, her doctor said she can start running again. I have to tell you, it's one of the most incredible feelings. It's almost as if I have returned to who I was before I was diagnosed with this condition. That story was reported by Alan Yoon. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find our show wherever you get your podcasts. We're talking about the mind-body connection. Cardiac psychology is still an emerging field, but there's one area of medicine where mental health support is already heavily integrated into treatment protocols, and that is cancer care. Much of that is thanks to the late psychiatrist Jimmy Holland. The founder of the field of of modern psycho-oncology. This is William Breitbart, a psychiatrist who trained and worked with Jimmy. In 1977, Jimmy was recruited to work at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. She was brought there to care for the mental health needs of patients. People at that time wouldn't actually talk about having cancer. Doctors didn't often tell patients their diagnosis. It was sort of a paternalistic, protective environment in the sense of doctors didn't want to upset their patients, you know. So people weren't even talking about the illness itself. Now imagine trying to discuss your distress, anxiety, or depression around this diagnosis. Jimmy wanted to make sure her patients would feel comfortable. She renamed her clinic the Special Clinic that actually cut down on the stigma. Patients would tell their families, I'm not really going to see a psychiatrist. I'm going to the special clinic because I'm special. 
Jimmy made many groundbreaking contributions, like screening patients for mental health issues related to their diagnosis, just like doctors screen patients for pain. Screening for distress now is something that happens in all cancer centers when patients are admitted and at periodic times through the course of illness, and it's what's called the sixth vital sign. How patients are feeling in terms of their mental health is now seen as an essential part of treatment. The fact of the matter is that many of them uh, have levels of distress that are uncomfortable, that interfere with their daily lives and their functioning, and most important, related to outcomes, cancer outcomes, they interfere with the patient's ability to take the treatments and to adhere to them and to tolerate the treatments. Uh, you have profound levels of depression or terrible fatigue, for instance, a very common consequence of radiation therapy or chemotherapy. And we use a lot of pharmacotherapies and other interventions to help patients with fatigue and to deal with the psychological component of fatigue or to use psychiatric medications like psychostimulants to help with fatigue. And it also, you know, earlier on, as you were describing some of the symptoms that come with chemotherapy, a lot of them mimic symptoms people feel when they are depressed or when they are anxious. So it could easily become sort of a feedback loop in the body that you're feeling lousy and then you feel lousy and then you feel more lousy, you know, so it could easily send you down this spiral. No question about it. And in fact, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons it's important to have uh, psychiatrists and psychologists who specialize in psycho-oncology is the ability to accurately diagnose things like clinical depression. It turns out if you have a clinical depression, even though you have cancer, you respond to antidepressant medicines, antidepressants plus psychotherapies that are helpful for depression. You actually respond even though nothing changes about your cancer. So it's very important to have someone who is assessing and diagnosing depression who's a special, who specializes in that interface of psychiatry, psychology, and oncology or cancer care. Because as you point out, many of the symptoms of cancer or cancer treatment can mimic the symptoms, usually the physical symptoms of depression. So there's a lot of overlap. That's psychiatrist William Breitbart. He is the Jimmy C. Holland Chair in Psychiatric Oncology at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Coming up, the physical manifestations of traumatic experiences and healing the body and mind. Just checking in over and over and over and being like, how do I really, really feel right now? That's next on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor SAP Concur. Stuart McLean, CFO of Brother UK, shares how SAP Concur's audit and expense tool supports their work across multiple offices. Across Europe, we, we have a presence in 17 countries, which obviously involves 17 different tax regulations, 17 different fiscal authorities, you know, and this, this makes life complicated for us. Um, but actually with SAP Concur, we're able to configure the system correctly for each of those countries. We're able to configure the audit rules correctly for each of those countries. So actually it gives us a lot of efficiency and good governance as well. 
So actually for us, a solution like SAP Concur makes life so much easier. Otherwise, we'd be forever checking back to regulations, checking back to documentation. Those are automatically updated in the system for us. So that's, you know, it's a big tick in the box from a governance perspective and an efficiency perspective as well. Visit concur.com to learn more. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLLearning.com. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the mind-body connection. When Stephanie Fu turned 30, she was diagnosed with complex PTSD, a form of post-traumatic stress that develops after years of being in traumatic situations. So that could happen in an abusive relationship, living in a war zone. For me, that occurred because of my abusive childhood. Stephanie was verbally and physically abused by her mother, sometimes putting her life in danger. And as a teenager, both of her parents abandoned her, leaving her to fend for herself. Despite all of the hurt and trauma, Stephanie managed to do really well in school and professionally. I think I was taught as a child that success would equal safety, that if I could be perfect, then maybe I would be safe at home, I wouldn't get hit, and I sort of internalized that. She became a really successful journalist, but as she got older, it seemed like she could no longer outrun her traumatic past. I experienced a lot of depression and anxiety, the dread, just feeling this constant need to be perfect in my life, in social situations, academically, in my career, or else something very, very bad was going to happen. Maybe I was about to get fired or everybody was about to leave me. And so this fear became sort of paralyzing. And I realized that there was something deeply wrong and I needed to get help. Stephanie documented her journey in her book, What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. She describes how the trauma affected her physically. Experiencing stress sort of becomes a feedback loop in the body. When we go through really traumatic experiences, our brain releases cortisol and other stress hormones into our bloodstream. And those stress hormones in the amounts that are being released into the body can be pretty toxic over time. And so for me as a child, this was happening all the time. I was constantly having these stress hormones flooding through my body. So then as an adult, they also came and flooded through my body very easily in moments where I might not be in danger. And those stress hormones 
further stressed my body, further stressed my immune system, my joints, everything. And it's really interesting, actually. There's some evidence that women can be uh, more susceptible to developing PTSD or long-term trauma, depending on the place in their cycle in which they experience trauma. And having an imbalanced cycle from these stress hormones can then cause problems down the line like endometriosis or fibroids or PMS. And so I was absolutely experiencing some of those. I had endometriosis. I had very severe PMS. And I came to realize that that may have a connection to all of the stress that I experienced as a child. She also realized that when her complex PTSD was triggered, she would dissociate a lot, feel disconnected from her body and the world around her as a protective mechanism. Sometimes when we see a flash of anger on someone's face, our panic response can really go off. But in moments of extreme stress and extreme danger, I can actually become eerily calm. And that's because our prefrontal cortex, which is the uh, center for logic and processing, actually sort of comes hyper online for us survivors, which interrupts that cycle of adrenaline. It sort of stops all of that and allows us to be hyper rational and for our breathing to slow and our heart rate to slow and for us to be very calm in these moments. Other times it feels like my whole body goes dead inside, kind of. It feels like I couldn't feel a feeling if I tried. Stephanie tried a bunch of different therapies. She did psychotherapy, but also tried approaches that addressed the physical manifestations of the trauma. Learning to really feel my feelings, get past that wall of dissociation, and be in my body so meditation was really helpful. Yoga was really helpful. Learning how to better calm myself when I become triggered. So interrupt that cycle of the stress hormones and get my brain and my body to both believe that I was safe. The triggers can be so subtle, though, and sometimes it sounded like they just happen without you possibly even being aware of the fact that you got triggered. So how did you learn how to identify these triggers and then feel your own response? I think that was the toughest part, coming to understand when I was triggered and maybe not understand why even a lot of the time. But a lot of it was really checking in with my body. Like a hundred times a day, I got a Fitbit to analyze what my heart rate was more often and how I was feeling and how I was sleeping and how different things like diet and exercise and sleep impacted me. But yeah, just checking in over and over and over and being like, how do I really, really feel right now? And combating the literal decades of dissociation protecting me. 
At the end of the book, Stephanie describes how she got help from an approach called rupture and repair. It's a psychotherapy method where the therapist breaches the relationship, introducing uncomfortable conflict for them to repair. Stephanie says, overall, it's taken a lot of practice to sort through the feelings in her body and to understand that whatever she's feeling is okay. I don't want to say like I'm fixed or I'm healed because I definitely am going to have CPTSD for the rest of my life. And I have good days and I have bad days. We're all out here trying to do our best to survive and appreciate when the happiness comes and survive when the beast comes and make the best of it. Stephanie Fu is a journalist and the author of What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. When it comes to treating trauma, some of the more traditional therapy approaches try to address the memories and how people react to them. These are top-down approaches, basically. The mind is controlling the physical reactions to triggers. But there are some methods that are using a more holistic, body-first approach. One of them is called somatic experiencing. Liz Tung has more. Sarit Rogers grew up in an emotionally abusive home, and the effects started young. At just three or four, she started having night terrors. As she got older, she started engaging in self-harm. She developed an eating disorder, addiction issues, and debilitating panic attacks. It felt like um, being trapped in my body. It felt like the world was inherently dangerous, like everything was a threat. So I sort of walked around almost in a perpetual fight response. Sarit tried all kinds of things to get better. She quit drinking, went to therapy, trained in trauma-informed yoga. Finally, in her early 30s, Sarit discovered a book called In an Unspoken Voice that talked about trauma in a way she'd never heard before. The main idea was that PTSD isn't a disease or a disorder, but more like a wound, a wound that we have the capacity to heal, not through our minds, but through our bodies. The most eye-opening part for Sarit was this one quote. The bad news is trauma is a fact of life, but it doesn't have to be a life sentence. And that stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, oh, wow, I can actually heal. It turned out that the guy who wrote the book, a psychologist named Peter Levine, had developed a trademarked therapy based on these ideas called somatic experiencing. I talked with Peter. He's in his 80s now. And he told me the idea for somatic experiencing came to him back in 1969 through an interaction with a patient. Peter was a young psychologist back then, interested in how muscle relaxation techniques could ease the effects of stress. That's when he met a new patient, a young woman he calls Nancy. And Nancy was suffering from all kinds of physical ailments. Migraines, irritable bowel, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, along with debilitating agoraphobia and panic attacks. The hope was maybe Peter's relaxation techniques could help. So they came in and she was just grabbing onto her husband and just the panic that she was in constantly. So Peter started with his techniques. And at first, they seemed to be working. Her heart rate slowly descended from 120 beats per minute to 100, then 90, then 80, then 70. And I thought, wow, this is really working. 
except in one moment, her heart rate shot up to about 150 beats a minute, 160 beats a minute. And I said probably the stupidest thing that anybody could say. I said something like, Nancy, you need to relax. You must relax. Surprisingly, it worked a little too well. Nancy's heartbeat got back down to 80, then 70, then 60, and then even lower. And she turned pale. Peter knew he had to get her heart rate back up. But how? And then an image popped in his head. And I said, Nancy, there's a tiger crouching, getting ready to spring. Run, run, climb those rocks and escape. She had no reaction at first. But as he continued to encourage her, something started happening. Her body started to have gentle shaking and trembling, and then deep, easy, spontaneous breaths. Her color would return to her face before where her fingers were ice cold. They were now warm. And then she looked at me and she said, well, do you want to know what happened? She told Peter that just as he'd asked, she imagined the tiger. At first, she was frozen. But at Peter's urging, she started to imagine herself running, her legs pumping, climbing up the rocks to escape. And she said, when I looked down, I saw the tiger and I knew I was safe. It was then that something incredible happened in Nancy's mind. And she said, the tiger changed. It morphed into an image of me when I was four years old. It turned out that this vision of danger and survival, the physical experience of outrunning death, had unlocked a memory in Nancy. She was four years old and about to get a tonsillectomy. She saw the doctors and nurses holding down her small body as they forced a mask over her face. She was terrified and felt like she was suffocating. She thought she was about to die. And for 20 years, her body was trying to escape from being held down in that way. The whole session, the wild swings in her heart rate, imagining a tiger chasing her, was uncomfortable for Nancy, to say the least. But afterwards, she felt better. And after a few more sessions, she reported that some of her worst symptoms, the migraines, the panic attacks, the agoraphobia, were gone. Peter knew something big had happened, though he didn't fully understand what. But as he mulled over what he'd observed, he started making connections. What had conjured the tiger image in his mind during the session with Nancy was a graduate seminar he was taking on animal behavior. He had learned that sometimes, under extreme threat, animals can go into something like a state of hypnosis. They become frozen, unable to move. This is what Peter thought had happened to Nancy when her heart rate plummeted and her body went cold. But when she imagined herself running, her system shifted from freeze to flight. The shaking, Peter found out, is something animals do after a life-threatening event, a way to discharge the excess energy from their fight-or-flight response. In Nancy's case, it was energy that had been stuck for years. Lots of energy gets locked in when our life is threatened. Our body becomes primed for action, but if it's unable to complete that action, it just gets stuck and keeps reverberating itself. From that experience with Nancy, followed by decades of studying animal and human responses to trauma, Peter eventually developed somatic experiencing, which is designed to help discharge that energy and complete the survival response cycle. Sessions can differ a lot, but it's kind of like a combination of mindfulness, visualization, and something like yoga or physical therapy, guiding the client through nervous system activation and discharge until finally, hopefully, 
all the trauma has been released. Peter also came up with a series of exercises designed specifically to discharge traumatic energy. He demonstrated one of them for me. I call the VU exercise, easy full breath, and on the exhalation, the sound VU. When I'm vibrating it right in my belly. I didn't feel terribly different in the moment. But I will say that I tried it the next morning when I had some free-floating anxiety, and I think it helped. I wanted to know more about the underlying science of somatic experiencing. So I talked with Peter Payne. He's a former student of Peter Levine's and co-author of a peer-reviewed paper they put out that lays out the theory of somatic experiencing. And I asked him what exactly is happening here on a biological level. Is the trauma actually physically stored in the muscles and nerves? Is it stored in the brain? And where is it going? He told me the question itself was based on a false premise. There's no such thing as a mind separate from a body. You say, oh, the mind influences the body. No, there's no such thing as a separate entity called a mind that influences a different entity called a body. So that's why we do not use the term mind-body. Somatic, okay, then we also say body-mind, all one word, to kind of imply this is not a corpse and a ghost in some kind of relationship, right? I did check with a PTSD researcher to get his take on all this. Dr. Alan Peterson, who directs the Strong Star PTSD Research Consortium at the University of Texas, San Antonio. He was skeptical about somatic therapies in general, along with the notion that trauma can be stored physically in the body. Exposure therapy and cognitive therapy, he told me, are the gold standard approaches for treating PTSD. There is some independent research verifying the efficacy of somatic experiencing, but at this point, not a lot. More central to the popularity of somatic experiencing has been word of mouth from true believers like Sarit. She says she will never forget her first session. I felt seen. I literally felt seen and I didn't feel judged. The lack of pathologizing, the bearing witness to humanity, that was life-changing. I felt totally different. I felt totally like a different person after that first weekend. Sarit didn't always have the money to do continuous sessions. Somatic experiencing tends to be pretty expensive. But she did them when she could. And she started doing some of the exercises, like the VU. She even became a practitioner herself. And over time, she's improved. More, she says, than she ever had from talk therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy or EMDR. The way Sarit sees it, you can't think or talk your way out of trauma. You have to feel your way through it. That story was reported by Liz Tong. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tong, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening.
Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why people do the things they do. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear... It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.